I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Uh, today on the show, we're talking with my friend and my ICS colleague, Keegan Irish, about a really great uh, blog post that he did, uh, slash essay, I guess, um, on Ground Motive, which is a... Uh, blog departmental reflection board i don't know it's a lot of things but it's run by our school and uh it hosts different writings by students and professors and i've written there and uh it's a really really awesome reflection on anarchism and christianity with respect to a specific anarchist action that happened nearby toronto in hamilton ontario so we'll let keegan explain more about that in a minute uh but before that we've got a new itunes review and that's the kind of thing that gets me super excited what's going on there matt <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've got two itunes reviews um that's nice <laughs> we've been sort of in this drought uh of uh, review reviewless episodes and here we are uh we got reviews now okay so uh two reviews the first one uh is titled this podcast is good and when it's bad it's very good five out of five nice. stars <laughs> that's a good i guess it's a good review it's a it's bad like in that 90s version of bad Ooh, it's bad bad to the bone <laughs> it is bad to the bone i had a i had a poster when i was a kid from the live action uh 101 dalmatians movie that said bad to the bone um my dog spider she has a collar that says bad to the bone oh nice more like snuggly snuggly dog to the bone uh cool <laughs> anyways this person says <laughs> about our podcast I wanted to come up with a very good comment, but I put so much energy into the subject that I got nothing left. Perhaps if we, <laughs> perhaps if the, oh my gosh, perhaps if the capitalists weren't stealing my creative spirit, I could do better. But you should listen to this podcast. Matt and Dean throw up the alley and help you oop it on reactionaries, or at least cross them up with segues. Hashtag Joel Nostein. I think that's a, uh, I believe that's a basketball metaphor. Yeah, I I can see why all that creative energy got mixed up on that bad line. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we got a lot of mileage out of it. I'm not complaining. No, no, it's good. Some it's good and bad, but also good. <laughs> it's it's so bad it's real good. <laughs> That's right. Uh, cool. Um, the next review uh, is just called Forward and five to five stars. Uh, 
Oh, this is nice. Uh, look forward to the show every week. Good to hear that good revolutionary praxis from fellow Christian socialists or socialist Christians or whatever folks want to call themselves. As Mao would say, combat Joel Osteen. <laughs> Solid. I remember reading that. Yeah, it's in the red book. It's like uh, it's one of those uh, quotations from Mao. It's actually in the big red book. Most people just have the little <laughs> red book, so it's not not a more well known quote. But real real meow meow real meow real meow purists uh, they know about the big red book. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've got it on my shelf. It's so huge. I needed its own shelf. <laughs> Bear in the big red book. It's my favorite <laughs> show as a child. Oh my gosh. Mao and the Big Red Book was also my favorite show as a child. Um, it was on <laughs> Nick, Nick Jr. Uh, cool. Uh, great. So thanks for those nice reviews, those good five stars. We're going to take those stars. We're going to go to the star bank. We're going to cash them all in. We're going to give that money back to the people. Um, I think that's how iTunes reviews works, where you kind of can cash them in. It is. And uh, redeem them. Like They're like Chuck E. Cheese tokens or something. Yeah, we can get ourselves some uh, revolutionary finger traps. Some sticky, sticky slap hands. <laughs> that we can use to steal more uh, stars, expropriate those stars. <laughs> That's right. Cool. Well, before we just jump into the uh, into the conversation we're about to have with Keegan, um, I do want to say something about this. Uh, earlier in the week, uh, I made a dumb mistake, and I um, posted our Magnificast design uh, that was on all the cool t-shirts a while back onto teespring a website uh, which now i have a very low opinion of uh the idea was that we were going to sell like stickers with uh with the that logo on it the magnificast logo and uh then teespring was like hold on there fella uh that design looks like it belongs to someone else it's someone else's intellectual property um and they will not let us now sell it so this is why capitalism is actually really stupid and bad in case you didn't know um because it's actually uh i mean it doesn't really belong to dean or i uh somebody else made it for us and just told us we could use it uh it's kind of you know a complicated situation property uh doesn't work the way they think it does but anyways uh there are no stickers to be had at the moment and that is a huge bummer. Um, however, Dean and I are looking into some other sort of avenues for uh, the production of stickers and T-shirts that is uh, ethically sourced or as ethically sourced as anything can be under capitalism. So just keep an it eye out. It's extremely hard. Yeah, it is <laughs> uh, so hard. Speaking of which, we've emailed like three or four T-shirt companies already trying to work out exactly what uh, the production is, that whole situation. And if you know of a very cool t-shirt maker that will print our shirts and ship them for us please don't hesitate to tell us yeah it's crazy just want to get people paid the right amount of money and uh get t-shirts that aren't made in sweatshops but it's really difficult uh cool well we'll update you all in the future on that extremely pressing and interesting matter um of property (laughs) rights and teespring um cool well let's turn it over to keegan All right, well, as advertised, uh, today on the Magnificast, we have Keegan Irish, uh, the author of a really neat article on groundmotive.net, which is the ICS blog. Uh, the article is called Christian Reflections on Lock Street Anarchism, which is uh, kind of a meditation on uh, some direct action that happened in Hamilton, which uh, we'll talk about in a second. But before we do, uh, let's just catch up a little bit. So, uh, Keegan, what have you been doing? Uh, hey, man, I... Well, I've been working a lot. I've been uh, just working on my thesis. I'm a master's student at uh, ICS. 
uh, here with Dean. So it's been a bit busy lately. I uh, I attended a conference this weekend. I presented a paper on uh, it was about Foucault, but it was a it was a philosophy of religion conference. So that was uh, that was pretty pretty good experience actually. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, what was your paper called? Uh, it was called "How Christian Is Modernity." And uh, it was reflection. Good question. Uh, the the subtitle was like uh, "Governmentality and Pastoral Power" and uh, the work from Michelle Foucault. Nice. That sounds cool. Nice. Yeah, it was. It was cool. Was it pretty well received, <laughs> or was it just? Uh, it, it it was actually, conference. and which was uh, I was a bit nervous because like I'd never actually done that before. Oh yeah. Um. So it was a uh, it was a first time thing for me, but uh, it went over well. People seemed to connect with it, and uh, we chatted about it after. So yeah, it was uh, it was actually pretty encouraging. That's really neat. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, what have you guys been up to? Uh, man, just been writing a bunch of stuff. Uh, I had a feature article come out in America Magazine this week, and then um, a bunch of stuff happened this week as well that I've been trying to report on. Um, <laughs> Keegan and I both live in Toronto, and there was a big, um, huge, massive event yesterday. This guy drove a van into a bunch of pedestrians here, which is a terrible thing. And uh, when you're a journalist, you have to I guess think of some way to say something about that without sounding like a jerk or an idiot. Yeah. So I've been <laughs> working on that. Uh, I'm still not determined if I can avoid those two fates, but mm-hmm. that's my <laughs> my task right now anyway. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. difficult. Yeah, it's heavy for sure. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, I did get a haircut though, which doesn't sound oh. like a huge event for most people, but I get a haircut once or twice a year depending on how my life is going well. <laughs> for an entire year <laughs> and uh today was the day so I called up my barber and he was like i am at a different shop now but you can come here so. <laughs> uh, that's nice. pretty cool yeah how about you matt what have you been up to um i don't know just dumb class stuff uh it's the end of the semester for me <laughs> and i'm like grading a bunch of stuff and administering final exams and uh I don't know. All of that, that good stuff. Class will be over in like uh, two weeks, though, and that's going to be a really good time. Yeah, I'm going to do nothing for days, so (laughs) (laughs) going to be sick, yeah. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, well, cool. Um, Keegan, could you tell us a little bit about the blog that you wrote? Uh, We usually just uh, ask people to give kind of an elevator pitch of uh, what their project is, so maybe you could give us that elevator pitch all the way to the top floor. Yeah, (laughs) for sure, for sure. Um, all right. So, uh, I wrote the piece a while back, like right after the event first took place, the event being there was, uh, there, there were some anarchists in, in Hamilton and, uh, on March 3rd at night, I don't know, it was maybe like 10 or 11 at night, they walked down Lock Street and, uh, they were carrying this banner that said, we are the ungovernables and, uh, using, you know, stones and that sort of thing. They, they broke, broke a bunch of windows and they set off these kind of firecrackers. And, uh, after, you know, uh, vandalizing some storefronts, they, they dispersed. Um, so it was an interesting instance of, uh, of anarchist direct action. And there was a, a lot of backlash kind of right away. And so my piece is meant to respond to some of that backlash, especially that I saw, um, from Christians. I think that in, in this case, uh, a lot, it's, it's sort of, I guess I would kind of qualify what I'm about to say in that one of the things that's kind of become apparent to me between the time when I wrote this piece and, uh, 
when it actually ended up being published is that there was kind of like a wider uh, diversity of Christian responses than were sort of apparent to me at the time. But uh, I felt compelled to kind of write something and say something because it seemed as though a lot of Christian voices were lacking in uh, serious analysis of why this, uh, this action took place. Yeah, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay, so I'll just quickly run through what I said. And I, uh, um, so I talk about gentrification uh, and, and what is it? And so gentrification is sort of this process of uh, where folks are displaced for groups that, who are considered to be, uh, to be more desirable. And uh, part of the argument of the piece is that um, this is violence as well. And so while that the breaking the windows and this kind of thing um, is violence, there is kind of this deeper violence uh, that's taking place in, through uh, capitalist uh, expropriation. And so I, I think that churches are often not willing to dwell on the kind of these fault lines. Um, and the, the, when something like this happens, they're very quick to want to uh, reassert the status quo. So I, I have in the piece a reflection on, um, on Jesus and the story from the Gospel of John, where Jesus uh, enters the temple and uh, turns the tables from the money changers and drives them out with the whip and... Uh, you know, calls on them to stop turning his father's house into into a marketplace, and so I fl reflect on this action in the context of uh, the social world that uh, Jesus was operating in, where there was this kind of agrarian society um, that had uh, had been urbanized, and and so there's this way in which there's kind of a an urban class who's capitalizing off um, folks who are coming to the the temple to uh, to sacrifice, and so when Jesus chases out these uh, these money changers. I read this as kind of showing us that Jesus' ministry is uh, is disruptive and that it is aimed at overturning uh, established order, not like in a peaceful way, uh, but in a way that ultimately uh, leads to the cross. And so I like where this story shows up in the Gospel of John uh, because it's right at the beginning of the Gospel as opposed to um, in the other three gospels where the story actually comes up at the end. And so here hmm. it seems to me that this kind of disruptive aspect of Jesus ministry, this, uh, um, this attack on these kind of established hierarchies uh, is foundational for, uh, for, for his ministry. Uh, yeah. So I end the piece by calling on Christians to kind of dwell with the complexity of the situation uh, before they jump to conclusions or solutions or condemnations. Yeah, uh, I think it's really a, a cool piece, especially because, uh, so like Keegan was just saying, the event happened in Hamilton, Ontario. We both live in Toronto. And uh, so there's a lot of kind of buzz about it, I mm -hmm. guess, kind of just around where we live. Uh, but even more than that, it, it's interesting because there it, it's weird to watch Christians respond to societal violence and, uh, I don't know, pol actual political decisions. Like, Christians kind of don't seem to have uh, a way of figuring that out, which is ironic, as you point out in the uh, in your post, because mm -hmm. Jesus had some ideas about that. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so, 
maybe to like get into that and so folks can kind of understand it beyond the um kind of general terms we could just think about the local bit first Mm -hmm. like could you describe a little more about the situation in hamilton and like why did the ungovernables uh, march on lock street specifically what's the symbolic or like practical value of that part of the city yeah definitely um Okay, so in answering this, I feel like I may say some of the most controversial things I'm going to say, <laughs> because uh, this is a, it's just a very contested story about like what is the history of somewhere like Hamilton. Um, but in kind of broad strokes, uh, Hamilton was previously like a very kind of industrial working class city, and uh, it has been really hollowed out, and there was like economic collapse uh, a few decades back, like in the 70s and 80s, and uh, the downtown. Um, just a lot of the people who lived there and the businesses, uh, just kind of fled because there wasn't anything for them there. But, uh, what this did, this whole kind of economic collapse was allowed for property speculators to, uh, to move in and buy up significant amounts of property, um, at a very low value and basically just leave them to rot. Um, and this created opportunities for other people to move in. And so Hamilton is kind of especially famous for uh, the arts community who uh, moved in to and established itself in this in the context of this kind of dilapidated city. But, um, you know, they eventually had to become economically viable. And that, so these galleries and, uh, you know, artists studios had to create an industry around themselves. And so uh, slowly they kind of, attempted to clean up uh, the city and uh, especially like the kind of the first few business owners and this kind of thing would work with uh, police to um, just, yeah, create an environment where folks would feel comfortable coming to galleries and this kind of thing, which pushed out a lot of the people who had been living there who were, you know, kind of uh, destitute and forgotten by the larger uh, capitalist form of organization. But uh, so as this kind of, vanguard is cleaning up the city that allows for other small businesses that uh, are legitimately profitable to begin to enter in like cafes and bars and restaurants and that sort of thing and so once that happens and uh, these businesses begin to organize amongst themselves that kind of signals to and they you know they advocate for different improvements around the city um that signals that for the big developers that uh, that it becomes that it's time to act. Uh, so part of what's complicated about gentrification in Hamilton is that uh, the kind of hip artisanal character of uh, of, of a lot of these uh, businesses and organizations actually provides cover for uh, the agenda of these larger developers. And so Lock Street is symbolic because it is considered sort of the economic success story of the city. But at the same time, almost the entire street is owned by a, uh, a single capitalist, right? So I think that is why, I mean, besides probably its proximity to these, these folks, like, I think that it has that, uh, that symbolic value as well. Uh, that's a pretty helpful uh, inroad then. Um, well, okay, so you say in the article that you're not an anarchist, and that's fine. You don't have to be, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> you were yeah. trying to figure out uh, like what was being said in the property destruction on Lock Street, like what the sort of communicative content of that direct action was. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what do you think? 
what do you think it was? <laughs> what was revealed in the events on Lock Street? What, what happened or like what comes out uh, because of the direct action that took place? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So the reason I was so interested in it is just because this event hit really close to home, both kind of literally and figuratively. <laughs> um, and I guess it just seemed the way that uh, a lot of the communities were responding where they were, they were saying that this, it, it was senseless. They were describing it as senseless a lot. And that really just rubbed me the wrong way. And I, 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 that drove me to want, want to understand and to kind of make sense of what uh, I felt like other people were refusing to, uh, to make sense of. Um, and so I think that what is revealed to come to your question is uh, precisely the fault lines between um, the moral discourse of revitalizing the community and of economic development. And so, yeah, the, the fault line between that moral discourse and the reality of people who are being displaced, the reality of uh, the violence of police and, uh, you know, and following it, we see these protests and uh, there's reactionary violence and all this kind of thing. So it really, I think, that the action did cause those fault lines to bubble to the surface that um, this discourse of uh, urban revitalization wanted to bury. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I love that so much too, because as we've talked about a few times on this podcast in the past, uh, what seems like senseless violence, uh, it's not like there's no real sense there. I, I think that's a really important instinct, I guess, that yeah. you had. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> that kind of leads me to ask, like, why do you think that Christians don't have those instincts? Or, <laughs> like, is there something in uh, Canadian or American Christianity that makes it hard for Christians not to just jump to the defense of capital? Um, because in a real kind of way, defending capital doesn't really make sense either. At least it doesn't make any any more or less sense than attacking capital as you as you uh, write it in the uh in your piece. So yeah. Do you have any impressions on that kind of as you've watched all those reactions unfold? Yeah. Um, this is actually, this is a really tough question and it, because I think it's a really large question about, is there something in like American and, uh, Canadian Christianity that, uh, would lead them to lead to the defense of capital. So I, I guess I'll, I'm going to approach it from, from two angles, maybe. So the first would be that there, I think there is just the historical weight of North American Christianity where uh, it's deeply entangled with uh, the history of capitalism and colonialism on this continent, right? And um, like Christianity is the, the, the religion of the settler and uh, it has been the logic which has justified a lot of the ways in which our societies have developed on on the backs of you know for example like indigenous and uh and black black slaves um so there i think there's that aspect where um you know historically christian identity is tied to settler identity and tied to capital capital and so it's very natural for people to sort of fall in line with that i think that's one side of things um on the other hand, yeah, I have maybe a less cynical reading about why uh, Christians 
can be kind of duped into coming to the defense of capital. And I think that that has to do with something um, about what it means to be a Christian and to kind of experience life as a Christian person. And uh, one of the things that Christians do is to hope in the face of despair, right? In uh, against all odds, like Christians kind of, uh, they'll, they'll hang on to hope. Christians will um, sing when, when you should weep. And I think that that's actually something very deep about what it means to be a Christian person and something that is incredibly valuable. But um, there can be a problem with that as well, where if we, we are not, uh, if we're not critical, then we can be too quick to jump to kind of moralizing conclusions and then we'll be really susceptible to uh, moralizing discourses. I think that, you know, if we don't sort of do what, uh, you know, to use Paul's language, if we don't weep with those who weep and we're too quick to look for that hope, then uh, it's really easy to get caught up in the kind of in the more moralizing discourses, which play a huge role in the way that uh, specifically gentrification operates, right? This idea of like environmentalism or uh, charity and so on. Yeah, I I think that's that's right. Well, here here's an observation or maybe like a weird question that will I I don't know maybe lead us in some kind of direction. This is sort of off script, so uh, mm-hmm. we can talk about this as much as you would like or as little. <laughs> um, so something that's yeah. I think is kind of interesting about the sort of your 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 uh, report in the article is that Christians were like upset about this about sort of the property destruction of a gentrified area. However, I think that uh, at least in my experience and in uh, my community, like there are certain types of property destruction. That I think that I could get like maybe like the you know the most liberal Christians uh, in my community on board with like. Um, for example, I've told, I've told, uh, some of my students like this story about, uh, the Catholic worker women who tried to burn down the like Dakota access right. pipeline mm-hmm. and like, st- like the students I was talking with about this, like, didn't seem like they were, you know, had much of a problem with that. Like, like they kind of like understood that logic, uh, of problem yeah. destruction. But I feel like this, there's something different going on here where if I told them this story about, uh, Lock Street, they might be mm-hmm. like, well, that's not exactly cool. So I wonder if there's like in some way too, like uh, since it is sort of like the the petite bourgeoisie kind of uh, behind this, the, you know, like the, the the small like the shop owners are sort of the receivers of this. Like we don't mm-hmm. connect society uh, systemic justice in the same way we would uh, in say like the Dakota Access Pipeline. Definitely, and even just in conversation when I brought this up with folks and kind of like brought up a counter perspective that it comes up so often, right? Well, like, Oh, they're not, these people aren't part of the evil empire or whatever. They're just trying to like build this small business. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that's so deeply insidious about the process of uh, gentrification and especially like property speculation is that it actually depends on people's like personal investment right? In the sense that like people pour their life and their work into um, building up these shops and this kind of thing to create the environment for like more large scale investment that will in turn eventually push them out. Mm. And I think that that's what the artist community in Hamilton right now is is seeing where, uh, you know, they really poured themselves into creating this kind of this art scene that is really cool and like has all this kind of uh, all this kind of wonderful stuff to offer. And then in turn, that is, 
is beginning to be forced out and they see they you know you feel burned right because you're like i put in all this work but uh you you kind of wind up betrayed and so it's it is tough because that to i think most people you know they side with the person who has done something really constructive and poured their life's work into uh whether it's creating a business or uh, um you know, making art or whatever that might be. And so it is a lot more difficult to say, well, look, maybe there's another side to that person being attacked, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it definitely makes the situation way more complicated, but I, I, I think that that actually, that discomfort that people feel with those, uh, these kind of smaller, more personal, um, businesses or, or, uh, firms or whatever shows that, or highlights that really kind of insidious element of the way that property speculation operates. Hmm. Yeah. That's a really uh, interesting and enlightening sort of observation to make. Huh? <laughs> well, um, I guess uh, sticking with that theme of kind of like staying with the, the tension and the uncomfortableness of property destruction from the left uh, mm-hmm. to kind of grapple with that, you suggest that Christians just ask the question, uh, where does the pain come from that would drive someone to do this, that would drive someone to you know smash a window? Um, so I think that's a good question. And I think that's really, I mean, the right response to this. But I guess, how do we prompt uh, our own friends and congregations and communities to ask these types of questions? What's the way in for this conversation? Yeah. That's a really good question, too. And a really, like, an important one, I think, because... Yeah, I kind of just, I, in the piece, I just sort of throw it out there, but I don't offer like a, a strategy. So you're making me think about it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, just to reflect on it in general, you know, as as kind of a young person who's like been uh, involved in church communities, I feel like I've been asked a lot of times by older people like, oh, how do we kind of get young people involved with the church and what are, uh, what's going to bring, bring young people in, et cetera. And uh you know, usually my answer to that, because they'll often be like, oh, would you guys like this kind of event or that kind of event or whatever? <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, I don't think any of these kind of weird outreach things are actually good at all and uh, or will be super appealing for people of my generation. But, uh, <laughs> you know, rather. So normally what I say uh, when I'm asked that question is like, just like, stand up for uh, for what's right. You know, I think that so many people, if they have a, a an issue with the church, it's like usually has to do with with these kind of injustices that seem really, really glaring. And so when you see the church kind of going against the the grain of like what you expect them to be doing, I feel like that's going to be way more appealing and like make people much more curious than having any kind of event. So I think like having these difficult conversations is, um, uh, is really important. So what, so the way that this answers your question is that, as a, as a strategy into how do we get our con- congregations, let's say for those of us who are already in the church to talk about this stuff, uh, we maybe we could demonstrate that it is aligned with their explicit priorities, which is like a, trying to bring people into the church, trying to build community. And um, if you could kind of play to that, you know what I mean? And say like, actually, you know, some of this, this is could be some of the more important stuff that you're, that you're doing. If you'd want to do that kind of like outreach to, uh, to younger people or something like that. And I, I actually hate the word outreach so much, but uh, I'm using it there. <laughs> uh, do, does that make sense? I don't know. What do you guys think? Right. Yeah, it was tough. Um, 
it just makes me think of we had John Thornton Jr. on here not too long ago, mm-hmm. who's an actual pastor trying to figure this stuff out in his church. And <laughs> I remember, I mean, he had some similar kind of sentiments, I guess, that, you know, people are, are leaving the church a lot and churches talk about uh their kind of membership problem as though it's this huge big mystery to be solved but uh i remember john was like well if you like started paying off people's debts and stuff you would have more people coming to your church <laughs> like yeah. if you just uh you know actually did these kinds of things and thought really hard about like the political economy that you're in uh maybe you would seem like a place that people actually want to be part of or something like that um but I don't know. I mean, ideology is like a real life thing that I think just like forecloses people from ever getting there. So totally. yeah, it's tough. Totally. <laughs> Keegan, at first I thought your answer was going to be like, oh yeah, well, I mean, outreach just, uh, you know, if you have sort of a night where you can bl- bring millennials together and like smash some windows, I think it'll go a long way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll uh, we'll tell our pastors, you know. <laughs> like, like, what if we started like a black box, a, a black block Bible study? Yeah, <laughs> why not? That? Yeah, instead of we are the ungovernables, our banner will say like you know a verse from John or whatever. It'll be, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be really cute. Um. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> uh, so that night on Lock Street, uh, you kind of report that there was some broken windows and also some other vandalism. Uh, one part that sticks out to me, one kind of piece of the vandalism that sticks out to me, because it is, I mean, pretty cool, uh, <laughs> is uh, some some words that were posted on one of the broken windows from the uh, Spanish, an- the oh my gosh, the Spanish anarchist uh, Bonaventure de Rudy's uh, words, slogan, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. We are not in the least afraid of ruins. We carry a new world uh, here in our hearts. Uh, so you compare like that quote, that uh, slogan, that extremely good potential tattoo that you'd have um, <laughs> uh, to Jesus's words, uh, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, I mean, there's an obvious connection to these two types of things. And Christian anarchists have held on to the kingdom of God within you since, you know, Leo Tolstoy a thousand years ago. <laughs> a few hundred, yeah. not a thousand. You know, he's not sure. that old, but uh, you know what I mean. He's not, he's not young either, you know. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. he's uh, he is between a hundred and a thousand years old. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but anyways, like, what what can we make of these types of comparisons uh, about this, like, sort of like uh, internal feeling of like uh, new world? I mean, it's kind of uh, latent in Christianity, but also there in anarchism too. Um, what should this, uh, I guess, what should this comparison demonstrate about the similarities between Christianity and anarchism? Um, maybe I'll just make, start with like a brief point of clarification, which is that that, um, so that slogan was actually written. So there's a, an anarchist community center in Hamilton called the tower. And there was retaliatory violence against that, uh, community center by, I, I don't know, proud boys or whatever. Some folks like this, some reactionaries. And uh, they smashed the window there and went inside and wrecked it and, you know, threw their library around. And it was when they put up boards on, on their own window that, that they wrote that. And, oh, I see. Yeah. But the reason I bring that up is that one of the things that I contrast that with in uh, in the article that I thought was really striking was that, uh, uh, you know, so the outside the windows on Lock Street, there were also a bunch of boards put up prior to those windows being fixed. And... Um, 
one of the things that there was all, you know, it was like the wall of love or whatever. And people were writing these, these messages of love, which is nice. And, but one of the things that had been written by someone was that uh, like an anarchist bookstore has no place in a, in a cultured community, which was just like, so disturbing to me that, uh, that that would be written. And I thought that the contrast was like so stark between, <laughs> you know, someone writing that these people are not welcome as opposed, as opposed to the, the stuff at Daruti. So then I also, uh, Anyway, yeah, I, 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 I went on to draw the comparison with, uh, uh, with, with Jesus, as you bring up. And, um, yeah, so what can we kind of draw from that comparison, um, I think, is an interesting question. And so I, I guess the things that really stand out to me, the salient commonalities, I guess, that like Christians have with anarchists, maybe, would be kind of coming back to that point that I made earlier, which is the like the hope against hope, you know, hope in the face of, of despair. It seems that both anarchists and Christians sort of have to, uh, have to lean into that and, uh, lean into really like an anticipation and a tension between, um, between what they see as a broken world and, uh, what, what, what they hope for. Um, and I know there's, I'm sure there'll be anarchists who will push back against that, but, um, I think that there's there's something to it, um, and while I don't think it's the same, I don't think that their way of sort of engaging, um, you know, contemporary brokenness with respect to hope, are are the same. I think that there's something that sort of rhymes about those two temporalities or those two ways of engaging time. So that would be one thing. So maybe just building on that would be something that is in common with uh, anarchists and Christians is that we both hold ourselves apart from the world and imagine other possibilities. Right. And I think that there could, there's a potential to have some really fruitful conversations about learn, learning what that both the future and what like the contemporary brokenness look like. Yeah. That would just be to kind of wrap that thought. Yeah. Um, I really like the way you put it where uh, it's not necessarily the same, but there's something that rhymes mm-hmm. um, that just like strikes a chord with me really well. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal it from now on. Um, <laughs> All right. Property's left. So <laughs> now it's mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but talking about maybe like one more like cool rhyme, I guess, in the history of kind of Christianity and anarchism uh, together. Uh, I, w- I was thinking as I was reading your piece about this episode we did, episode 26 with, Heath Carter, who's a historian, uh, he wrote a book called Union Made, and his book kind of traces like Christianity and Chicago's workers' movements, uh, but specifically he mentions this really interesting letter from August Spies, who was one of the Haymarket anarchists in Chicago, and it really stuck out to me. So I'll read a little bit of that letter and then ask you a, a question about that rhyming. Sure. So this is like kind of a little bit long, but I think worth it. So Spies says, um, this is in a letter to his fiance before he's about to be hanged. Damn. Um, He says, you will probably remember the crucifixion of a young, bright, generous, and noble-hearted Jew by the name of Jesus. And in connection with this incident, you will likewise remember that a few days prior to his legal murder, he had entered the temple of Jerusalem, which he found occupied by the board of trademen of that city. And when the Jerusalem board of trademen saw their respectable business thus exposed by this foreign, half-distracted, wild-eyed, ranting agitator, that's all in quotes, Uh, And when they saw that his words were listened to eagerly by the people, they formed a conspiracy, drummed up some charges against the lawless fiend, 
and crucified him as a convicted felon. You will readily see the analogy of this and our own case. Uh, so I felt like something that you were doing in your article was kind of drawing that analogy out as well. Um, and especially when you talk about cleansing the temple, maybe we can do a little bit of work on that. Like, uh, how does that kind of cleansing of the temple and Jesus's direct action sort of rhyme, I guess, without being the same as uh, the actions in Hamilton or kind of rhyme with these other sort of moments in like anarchist history? Yeah. Uh, first, it's really cool that uh, this connection sort of, especially with the anarchist action predates my thinking, which I guess shouldn't be surprising at all. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, that's also, that's a great, the way that he puts it too. I love some of his language, the board of tradesmen and uh, uh, <laughs> the wild eyed uh, outsider. Um, that's all, uh, that's all actually quite wonderful. And there's something so uh, beautiful about that being his letter to his fiance before he's hanged. Like this is sort of in his final moments and he has this vision of, uh, um, of kind of almost walking in the footsteps of Christ. And, you know, we could maybe debate how legitimate that is, but I think there's a certain kind of like passion and beauty there that uh, is, is undeniable. So that, that, that's wonderful. Thanks for reading it. It's interesting as well that, um, so he, he's using, I mean, really any of the other three gospels besides John where that story does, uh, appear right prior to um, Jesus's execution, where that story is sort of the last straw, right? It, it culminates, Jesus' ministry culminates to this moment of cleansing the temple. And uh, that is the thing that, uh, that leads to his death. And that's, I mean, that's very impactful. What I, so what I like about the, the John version in particular is that, that it comes at the, at the beginning of the gospel and that it kind of lays this foundation for Jesus ministry. And I find the symbolism of that contrasted with that story as the last straw also, uh, kind of really fruitful, really evocative. Hmm. Um, yeah. And so this question of, uh, of an, of analogy, I think that that is important to keep in mind that it's an analogy. And that's something that I try and bring up in the piece is that, you know, I'm not trying to say that, these folks in Hamilton are literally Jesus or whatever, but uh, there is sort of a, I think that this, that story of Jesus gives us a good uh, like hermeneutic tool or a good interpretive tool to understand what is taking place. So even if it's not a straightforward, um, you know, one-to-one -one relationship between those things. And um, I don't think we would want to say that it is, uh, we can still find, yeah, the similarity or this rhyming. Um, so I, one of the comments that someone left on the uh, on the blog post has had me really thinking, because uh, they compare Jesus' action in in the temple, overturning the tables, to um, the holy rage of Yahweh in uh, in the Old Testament, with these kind of like you know really classical acts of biblical violence like Sodom and and uh, and so on and uh they wrote um if god himself carries out the act so be it but i'm not invested already in some random person's claims to be yahweh in the context of just violence just because he is christian uh if there is just violence it must be yahweh it cannot be by a flimsy analogy <laughs> and uh i you know i, I this was thought-provoking but i was like okay so what i definitely don't want to be understood to be saying is that you should be invested in 
anyone's violence uh, just because they're Christian or they claim to act with God or whatever. In fact, that would be, uh, you know, hugely problematic. Um, so I, I immediately tried to push back. But at the same time, it, uh, it, it raised an interesting point, which was this, uh, that Jesus' action in overturning the temple is kind of in this line of, uh, of sacred history or something like that. And so, you know, what is the relationship between whether it's the Haymarket riots and, and that sacred history? Well, I think that even seeing these, um, these folks identity, identify with by analogy or like, uh, have that resonance with, uh, with the sacred history. Like there is something really quite beautiful there. And, uh, there is that, there's that interesting kind of spark that I see as well in the connection between Deruti's words and carrying the, um, yeah, carrying the new world in your heart. I think that it's an analogy, but these, it's maybe they also bleed over into one another in a certain sense beyond only, only analogy in like a, in a sort of abstract sense. So I don't, I don't know if that mm-hmm. makes sense, but yeah, I think so. Yeah. There's something more going on. Like it's not just a, a random coincidence, but yeah. there's something kind of spiritually unified there or something. Yeah. 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 Like quick, quick note about that though. I also really, I have some disdain for that argument that the person in the comments section made, um, <laughs> This is probably a dumb, like a dumb thing to start uh, start a sentence on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't want to wade into the comment section, I guess. But uh, you know that the idea of like, well, uh, violence can only be justified if it's you know done by God or something. Is I don't know. It's one of those annoying things I remember reading in like John Howard Yoder or something. Right. Um, I guess what I don't like about it is that it mm-hmm. it completely robs the situation of its like context. And just like it talks about violence abstractly. I don't know. Sorry, yeah. all that to say, uh, I guess that that type of liberal pacifism is something that I can never get behind. It's so frustrating and <laughs> like kind of misses the point of violence as such. So Totally. And uh, like what is the identifier of this more divine violence? Like how is it how is it ever to be recognized in any context besides like the, the mythological past? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like unless uh, God were to create like a pillar of fire or something, yeah. there would be no justifiable act of violence anymore <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah, that seems uh, you might be waiting a long time, as it were, or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Um, well, I guess kind of just to wrap the conversation up, it's been a really interesting one. Um, it, it's cool because we we've been talking about violence on the Magnificast uh, since forever. So it's it's fun to have a conversation. It's fun. I don't know if that's the right word either. It's interesting <laughs> to have a conversation about violence that's more grounded in like a real event that has just like kind of unfolded. Um, so it's been cool to kind of think about it that way. Well, uh, what do you think that Christians can learn from anarchist direct action? Um, you said that they should pay attention and kind of think about those fault lines. But uh, what's there for Christians uh, if they pay attention? Right. Um, good question. So, uh, maybe I think two main things, one that we've been kind of talking about and circling around a bunch is that, uh, disruptive acts of political theater are already a very deep part of Christian tradition. Um, and attending to that, I think can help 
recover uh, Christian history as a a living, breathing force, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be one one thing. It's sort of that recovery of that uh, disruptive theatrical trajectory of, of Christian history. You know, like Jesus, and you think of Stephen the the proto martyr and this kind of like this then this proliferation of martyrs all of a sudden like uh throughout the roman empire people are um you know standing up against this uh injunction to sort of like bow down before uh, uh imperial power and uh it uh even unto death you know so that's there's a theatrical component to that and it's it's clearly disruptive and sort of jarring so i think that um just reminding ourselves of, of that part of our own tradition can can awaken uh, the way that we use that tradition in uh, in our contemporary context and uh, the way that we appeal to it maybe and not so maybe anarchist direct action can teach us not to forget that or or something and the second thing that we can learn from direct action by paying attention is I think precisely what you pointed to which is the fault lines in our contemporary social and uh, economic arrangement. I think that anarchist direct action can, I mean, in certain cases, I don't want to say this is a uh, universal, but it can, uh, it could pull the mask off, uh, off of some of the moral discourses that we have accepted in our society and even, uh, you know, as it were baptized. So, yeah, just some of the discourses around uh, like environmentalism and uh, and charity that sort of seem like obvious goods, but uh, when they're read in the context of some of these deeper analyses of the way that capitalism operates, they actually serve as a moral uh, moral veneer for some really insidious forces. And so, I think that um, one of the things that direct action, at least ideally, could accomplish is calling attention to that. Um, and I mean, is it successful? I think that's something we could, we could discuss. Right. Um, and that there is, there's definitely critique, um, of, I mean, the events on lock street, like, I don't want to come off as saying like that. I think that they were the, the greatest or anything, but, uh, I just think that we could try and pay attention to these themes and, uh, yeah. That, you know, I mean, no one's kind of morally pure here, but that's part of maybe what we could learn as well. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably one of my favorite things about your article um, or your essay here. Just kind of saying, like, you don't have to necessarily even be an anarchist to understand the value of what's being communicated by anarchism. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I'm not an anarchist either uh, because I'm a Marxist <laughs> politically. <laughs> yeah. But um, nevertheless, like... I think it's really important to understand what anarchists are trying to say, especially in the ways that they're saying it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other discussions to be had about anarchism and about direct action and all that kind of a thing. But uh, like you, one thing that you just can't really deny, I feel like just with an honest look at anarchism is that uh, they do expose uh, certain allegiances that are otherwise not exposed. And they do uh, stir up the the kind of dust in a way mm-hmm. um and they they unsettle things and that dust has to settle again differently um so there's something about that that's just worth kind of paying attention to and i think that's probably one of my favorite things i mean amid all the, the cool things you do in the essay just that kind of really basic impulse to be like well there's something going on here that 
you have to kind of attend to even if you don't even if it's not something that you would do or something right uh thank you that was extremely well put and it uh, makes me feel like, <laughs> <laughs> makes me feel like i did something cool here <laughs> uh, yeah i think so uh and it's not just because we go to the same school <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, that uh it's a side note <laughs> yeah for that's the uh the full di- full disclosure, full disclosure <laughs> yeah <laughs> cool uh well thanks a lot keegan for being on the show um it's really nice of you to uh come on and it was a great essay for us to read and chat about um i should also say it was it's really nice to, for you to do on short notice um last night matt and i were like what are we going to talk about and uh we couldn't figure it out and then i was like wait a second i read something really cool this week and uh the guy who read it is my friend so maybe he'll do it with us so uh it's nice to nice to have reliable friends yeah well uh (laughs) thanks for having me on because uh you know i totally listen to your guys podcast i love it so it's nice to uh be on the other side of things a little bit i love you (laughs) hearing my own voice i'm sure it'll be awful but uh yeah but uh thanks a lot it's been uh it's been really fun Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, and we know that you did, you should go support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, we're also on all the social media. Just type in the Magnificast and find us, you turkey. Uh, also, special shout out to uh, Critical Mediations, a cool podcast that a uh, cool podcast network that we're a part of, and also Theology Corner, another cool podcast network that we're a part of. Um, so definitely go check those networks out. They've all got lots of shows on them. Friendly Anarchism is on both of them. So just go listen to Friendly Anarchism, uh, because like, why wouldn't you? Uh, all right, cool. Thanks. See you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord